Susanna was on Strictly Come Dancing with Anton. It's funny, uh, you look up Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. And it says, you know, Anton's worst score ever oh, no. with Susanna Constantine. <laughs> the only time he got knocked out first was with Susanna Constantine. The lowest score he got in X was with Susanna Constantine. Oh. This week, Raymond and I popped to West Sussex to visit fashion guru, presenter and writer Susanna Constantine and her two dogs, Fern, a Parson Russell Terrier, and Rocco, an Italian greyhound. Susanna is widely known for her TV partnership with Trini Woodall, but she had the most extraordinary life before that, kind of as an original it girl and royal girlfriend when she dated Princess Margaret's son, David Lindley. She's endlessly fascinating and hilarious, and she's also written a brilliant memoir called Ready for Absolutely Nothing, which I couldn't put down. It's totally unfiltered and just bursting with incredible anecdotes, a bit like her, really. Susanna took a while to warm to Raymond, I'm not going to lie, but by the end, she was cuddling him and she called him one of the few small dogs I can actually tolerate. I think it might be the greatest compliment he's ever had. I'm going to stop talking now and hand over to the fabulous woman herself. Here's Susanna and Fern and Rocco and Raymond. Sharon, sorry. Come on, Rocky. Where's Rocco? Rocco? Come on. Okay. Shall we go? Right. Come on, you. Oh, Susanna, I've got a good vibe about these dogs getting on. Yeah, I think they're fine, don't you? I think they're quite sort of old school gents, your dogs. Yeah, they're cut, but it's funny because they're not so used to meeting other dogs. I mean, he, look at them. I mean, they are, collectively, those three dogs are the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. <laughs> Raymond, Rocco and Fern. I mean, he is, Raymond is a floor mop. I think he's found his people. No, he's really, he's, he's ridiculous. Look at him. Funniest thing, some Brillo pad on legs. And, you know, normally he goes on these walks with these big... Labradors taking giant strides. Oh. Whereas what I love about your dogs is they're not going to be doing that. Where's Penny? Clifford! Where is she? There. Oh, there you are. Good girl. <laughs> oh, you're a good girl. You are. Oh, it's beautiful here, Susanna. I know. It really is so lovely. And God, I could never, ever live in London again. Really? No. I just find oh. it so, um... Oh, look, is he doing a little poo? Good boy. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Um, Come on, Ray. Yeah, I love going to London, but the only reason I really love going to London is because I get so excited about coming back home again. We're in Sussex, and I should tell you who I'm with. I'm with the very wonderful Susanna Constantine. I could talk to you for about 10 hours about your absolutely brilliant book. Thank you. Ready for Absolutely Nothing, which I was. Ready for Absolutely Nothing. It's a memoir. It's so brilliantly written. It's so funny. First, Susanna, can you introduce us formally to your two fabulous dogs? Okay, well, we have Rocco, 
who has one brain cell and is supposedly an Italian greyhound, which we didn't even know what that was, but he was born at the right time and close by, and he's my youngest daughter Cece's dog. Um, and he's black with little white paws, really kind of, he looks like he's got a thyroid problem because he's got sort of sticky out eyes. And then we have Fern, who is a Parsons Jack Russell. Come on, Raymond. Come on, you little git. Go on. <laughs> Go on, Fern, show him the way. Yeah, and Fern is my son Joe's dog. And we had two labs, but they've, they're God's dogs now, sadly. Um, so it's just these two. But we've all, I've always, always, always had a dog. Never, never in my life have I not had a dog. Let's go back to your childhood mm -hmm. and talk me through your pets, your dogs when you were growing up. Yeah, the first dog we had was a Yorkshire Terrier called Kimmy, who actually looked a bit like Raymond, funny enough. He was very hairy and he was kind of like my protector, although he could never be any, would never be any use at all, but he, in those days we had a house in London and I'd be put out in the front garden unattended except for Kimmy in my pram who looked out for me. So he was the first one and then Kimmy sadly died. Then we have Mumphy who was a Maltese terrier. Oh shut your mouth. Um, <laughs> we had a Maltese terrier called Mumphy who was very clever and very scruffy. And then I got Piglet, who was a Dachshund. Oi, fuck, Rocco! He gets completely overexcited. Rocco! Raymond, come here. Come on. Or is he posing? What's he doing? Raymond, come on. Here. Come on, little man. So, yeah, so we were talking about Yeah, your... then I got, so I have Piglet, and then, um, I got from Battersea Dogs Home, got a dog called Archie, who was, I think we all have, people who are dog lovers have one dog that stands out and you'll never repeat that relationship. And that was with Archie, who was half Corgi, half Lurcher. And he was beautiful, but he was the cleverest dog. And you know, like so many dogs can be, he was telepathic, you know, he knew what I was feeling and, but he would always find me wherever I was. So I remember when we were living in London, we lived in Battersea, Trini and I had just moved offices. So he didn't, he'd always came with me everywhere. He didn't come to mm. work that day. And he'd gone for, he would let himself go for, I'd just open the door and he'd take himself for a walk in Battersea Park. He'd wait at the zebra crossing for cars to stop and then he'd cross the zebra crossing on his own and go into the park. Um, we had a, like a mother's help at the time because I was working so much. And she'd taken him for a walk and he disappeared. And she called me up in such a panic saying, Archie, I don't know where he is, I can't find him. Anyway, Trini and I were in our new office in Notting Hill and I went out to go and get a sandwich. And there was Archie sitting on the doorstep. He'd never been there before. 
but he'd found his way across London, I don't know his route, across the park and found his way to me. I mean, isn't that just unbelievable? Oh, and he, so lovely. He was an amazing dog and everyone remembers. He came, remembers Archie, came to concerts with me. He never needed a lead. He'd come on the tube with me, down the escalators, just sit at my feet on the tube, lay outside. Every time, you know, we had a child, one, each time we had a child, he'd wait out, he'd sleep outside their door and protect them. Aww. He was such a great dog. And then... Yeah, because they become like witnesses to every moment of your so life. So true. Don't they? And so true. they're silent witnesses. Yeah. You know, I said things in front of a dog I wouldn't even say in front of a partner, like, or talk to myself. Or, yeah. You know, it's, um, it's, it is a really intimate relationship. Yeah, it is. It is. It's very... I could never not have a dog. But he was really special. And these two are lovely, but, but I don't have... The, I want to get... I want to find another rescue dog. Um, and I remember a friend of mine said, when you go to Battersea, just look for a dog that's sitting quietly. And that's what I did with Archie. He was just sitting quietly. And it was love at first sight. So I want to go back to your childhood because to the outside world, it would seem like an incredibly, extraordinarily privileged yeah. childhood. But I get the sense that it was it wasn't without its problems. I mean, it was an incredibly privileged childhood. You know, I grew up in a very privileged environment. There's, you know, there's, that's just how it was. But because my family life, or my mother, was severely bipolar, I never really knew what was going to happen day by day. Mm -hmm. And we were quite isolated. I had one friend at the time and I was very shy. So my main relationships growing up were with my animals. So it was with a dog, it was with Kimmy, and then my pony Dandy. And they were enough. They were more reliable, more constant, and would listen without judgment. Um, and it sounds ridiculous, but that's how it was. And they gave me a purpose in life, you know, looking after them, putting their needs before my own. Your parents were, they weren't aristocracy, but they were very... They were upper middle class. Yeah. My father was, would like to have been part of the aristocracy, but, um, and they were, it was a very old family. Both of them came from very old families, but there was no title or anything. You know, my dad was part of the mercantile classes, really. So there was, you know, there was lots of money around. But they were never weirdly, my parents were never kind of extravagant. Mm. They, they just, you know, they got what they needed. And then my dad was an amazing collector of antiques and paintings and he had an incredible eye. He was a real aesthetic. So, that's where his money went. He was like a shopaholic of antiques, but everything was incredibly comfortable. It was always quality, not quantity, yeah. with him. But we, you know, we were very, very, very lucky 
to have you know, grown up in the environment we did. And you lived most of the time, as a lot of people of your class and circle really did then, you had your country place and then you'd spend the week in London really. Yeah. And that was in South Kensington you had... Yeah, in Pelham Place, like a little Regency white stucco Regency house, which we considered to be quite modest, but you know, today you look at it and you think, fucking hell, that was such a place. Yeah. Um, so we were there during the week, and then every weekend we go up to Lincolnshire, and holidays and half terms would all be Lincolnshire, and that that for me was home. You know, the weeks were. You just sort of had to get through. I had to get through before going back home to the Priory in Lincolnshire. That was connected to the Duke and Duchess of Rutland, is yeah, that right? Yeah, that's right. And my, my, we didn't own it, um, we rented it off the estate, and but lived there for 45 years. We rented it for 45 years. And the reason it was such a home was because we had this um, incredible housekeeper, Mrs. A. Mrs. A was my, is my mother. You know, she died sadly last year, but I always, I thought, and it's a terrible thing to say, but it's the truth. She was, she was my mum. And, you know, I love my, my own mother, my biological mother, but Mrs. A, was constant, she was always there. She was so wise, so level-headed, the most amazing cook. And she, she never went away. I get the impression there was almost a sense of you being slightly handed over yeah. by your parents. My parents not only pay people to look after, my sister and I, but also to love us. And, you know, if we were bathed and watered and fed, and receive love, they were happy, and that gave them the freedom to go and do whatever they wanted. But I think, you know, that was very, very, it suited my father perfectly, but my mother found that very difficult. Did she? Yeah, she, she, you know, she was so maternal, but my father was quite controlling, and she had to toe the line with him, so, but I think she found it very difficult being away from her daughters, very difficult. I suppose it was, you know, a classic patriarchal setup due to the time and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But I suppose when you add status and money into it, you get to make even more decisions and so throw your weight around even more. Mm. I, I always feel a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you don't need to rely on anyone yeah. else. You know, in my relationship, my marriage, I have to give as much as my husband gives. You know, this is a partnership. I'm not going to, and my husband doesn't expect me to just be a housewife. He expects me to work. Yeah, that's really um, interesting about your dad, that I can sort of see how the money and, this, and the privilege almost isolated your mother further. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, Emily, but you're right. Because that's what money buys you, yeah. is seclusion and a cloistered life. Yeah. It buys you the ability to be completely and utterly selfish. That's what it does. My father, as much as I loved him, as much as I respected him, 
he was unbelievably selfish. You know, it was all about him and his needs, and he came first always. And he had the, you know, the finance to be able to implement that. And was your mum, was she a kind of society beauty, as they would have yeah, been called Yeah, she then? was. I mean, she wasn't a society beauty. She was definitely a beauty. You know, my father loved beautiful things. And she was his greatest acquisition. And he, get, you know, he kind of shone in her reflected beauty, if you like. And, and he was, he needed her. You know, mm. he, he wasn't someone who was comfortable on his own. He needed her by his side so he then could shine. Mm. Which is kind of, the, the two kind of contradict each other. You know, here's a man who's incredibly selfish, living his own life, doing what he wants, but he couldn't do it on his own. Mm. And so he, you know, when mum got really ill and her bipolar disorder started to manif manifest itself, he was completely, well, he was in denial that it was affecting her, but he was obsessed with her illness. And he was also a terrible hypochondriac, so he'd read up on it. But he, it's almost like he was reading up on it as a topic that had no bearing on him whatsoever. Sort of intellectualising yeah. almost, yeah. Yeah. And when you grow up with a parent who suffers from mental illness, particularly mm. when it's undiagnosed, it makes you quite hypervigilant and keen to control the environment mm. for the parent, perhaps, where you're, I need to make sure nothing... Yeah, you see, I never felt that. And I think that's because I had a sister who was six years older than me and, a, and we had Mrs A. Mm. So I was kind of relinquished of that responsibility, mm. but I was a watcher and so I was always watching what my mum was doing and, and I think that's why I found it so difficult being sent, well I know it's why I found it so difficult being sent to boarding school because I was, was unable to monitor and I was doing the monitoring completely subconsciously, I didn't realise I was doing it. And what sort of, what in terms of just how she would be or her behaviour or what mood well, she was in? Well, it depended if she was on a high or a low. You know, if she was on a low, she'd just sit and that was it. Just sit, nothing. You know, it was like no one was home at all. And then when she was on a high, she would speak so fast because her brain was motoring at a thousand miles an hour. Her speech couldn't keep up. And then she'd write and it would be just complete scribbles because again, her brain was going so fast and she was literally manic and then became psychotic and there were helicopters landing on the roof and fuck knows what else. You know, and I, I choose to look at the positives that my mother's illness gave me and my mother. So she was someone who treated everybody the same, had respect for everybody. You know, she was as good friends with the butcher, with our local mm. butcher, Mr. Taylor, as she was with the Duke and Duchess of Rutland. You know, they would come in, have tea, she'd get everyone together. And, you know, that was the greatest gift that she could have given me and my sister. And also, 
it was the ability to live in the present, mm. which because I've never been someone who looks back and I've never looked forward to the point of irresponsibility really, but just living in the moment. Because as a child, I, that's all I had. I didn't know mm. what the next day was gonna bring. I had no fucking idea how she was gonna be, whether we'd be going to hospital to see her, whether we'd be pulling her out of a smoking bed, whether she'd be catatonic or manic. And so all, all because my sister was away, she'd gone to boarding school and then she went to New York, so I was a bit like an only child. So all I had was the moment I was in. And, you know, that's a great way mm. to live your life, is right now, right here, me walking with you. Well, Raymond's sort of lazy little fuck and being carried. But um, this is not a dog walk, is it really, for Raymond? We've got the dog, but we don't have the walk, the dog walk. He's just not cooperating today. Look, there we go. Oh no, look, he's walking now. He responds he's... to Susanna because she gives him boundaries. No, it's because you're going downhill. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> all it is. And so obviously, as you say, you went to boarding school mm -hmm. and when you emerged from boarding school, I was really fascinated the way you were writing about how there was really just one path for yeah. you. Wasn't there? As yeah. far as your the world you came from, your job was to to find a good husband. Yeah. No, that was the case. And I remember, you know, I left school and I could have gone to university, but my dad said to me, "Oh, darling, you know that's a lovely idea, but you'd be far better off learning to how how to make good beef Wellington than going to university." And that summed up my upbringing. We were, you know, and all the girls who were at St Mary's Wantage, which was the shittest school in the world. We, we were all the same. We were being prepared to step into our mother's shoes. And I fucking hell, I did not want that. So my rebellion wasn't sex, drugs and rock and roll. There were a lot of my friends. It was in particular drugs, heroin. I chose to work. Mm. That was my, you know, that was my rebellion, to go off and make my own money. And you went to this, you did a cordon bleu cookery course in... Hilarious, yeah. Well, there were like three choices, weren't there? You could go yeah. to finishing school... Finishing school, secretarial college or cookery school. Mm. And... I think you chose the best option. I think I did. I mean, I, I know how to make a croissant from scratch. Can you believe it? Damn useful. <laughs> and it takes fucking hours. But I really enjoyed that because, again, it was that purpose and it was being, you know, it was a very, very professional... Um, school where you know the, all the guys they were all men young men who were training to become professional chefs and it was just you know it was it was such a great setting to be in where you're you know we'd work as teams and and I love you know food is the most important thing in my life and but so it, yeah you came back and then you were living at your parents and you had this dinner party. Well, talk me through the story of how you ended up meeting um, the Queen's nephew, David Lindley, who you dated for five years. Yeah, well, I was at school with Edwina Hicks, who is um, Pam, Pamela Hicks, who's the daughter of Mountbatten, um, Lord Mountbatten, and David Hicks is the interior designer, and Edwina, who's very sadly bipolar as well, she was, you know, one of my best, best, best friends, and we were having dinner and I was having a dinner party 
which is ridiculous, <laughs> you know, at the age of whatever I was, 20, 21, in my parents' very grand dining room. And you and were still living at home? I was still living you? at home. And um, she said, oh, I want to bring a friend. And I said, yeah, sure. And David turned up. And I wasn't, I fancied someone else, but he was a heroin addict, sadly. So he had no interest in me whatsoever. He was just waiting to get into the loo for his next fix to mm. shoot up. And I just found David so easy to talk to and different. And for me, it was always like finding a different path, subconsciously finding a way out, towing the line, but always looking for that tributary that went away from you know, the main course. And he was that, you know, because he was, had his own business, he was highly creative, he dressed differently. He had, you know, he was more, not worldly, but he just had a different outlook on life. And I found that really appealing and we just got on. There was a commonality there. And was it a slow burn or? It was quite a slow burn. I would say it was about a two week burn. And I was known as concrete knickers, not because they <laughs> fell down easily, but because no one could get into them. So two weeks was quite quick, actually, for me. And we had our first kiss on top of a Ferris wheel at a, at a little village fete in Oxfordshire. Yeah, and we kind of grew up together in you know, many ways. I love the relationship you had with his mother, yeah. Princess Margaret, because she just seems br a brilliant laugh. Well, she was a brilliant laugh, but she was also, she, you know, she loved to have a good time, but she was also tremendously warm, loyal and kind. Mm. And she, like Mrs A, she made me feel safe. You know, I felt safe in her company and there was, you know, and she was so unjudgmental. The only people she hated were sycophants. You know, I was just so lucky to, to have had her in my life and to have got to know, know her so well and vice versa. And, she, you know, my parents met, met her. We had a dinner at Kensington Palace and my mum was on such a raging high. And she was, every time Princess Margaret turned to look at her, my mum would curtsy. I mean, she was like this every, like not even five seconds, but every millisecond she was curtsying and I was dying inside. But Princess Margaret totally ignored that. Mm. And it was the first time I saw another adult treat my mum like she didn't have an illness, not to be patronising or pitying or rolling their eyes. Mm. She was, you know, she knew exactly how to handle it. And I was so grateful, you know, it was the first, and, and it gave me a new respect for my mother, weirdly. I'm just thinking about that now, but I think it did. It's like, yeah, it's not my mother that's presenting itself. It's her illness. My mother is still there somewhere. Yes. And that's who Princess Margaret was relating to. When people criticise her, the criticisms tend to, which I find fascinating, 
be revolve around her being caustic or acerbic and you think isn't it interesting that people the duke of edinburgh is sort of celebrated for that yeah there are books called the acerbic wit of the yeah. duke of edinburgh whereas that wasn't her role yeah. which is why i think it's criticized how dare she have agency and take up space basically yeah. <laughs> as yeah. a woman but she was just protecting herself yeah. and she didn't suffer fools and you know the 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 wankers that have that opinion of her saw one side of her and they deserve to see that side of her, in my humble opinion. It's like the Queen was, you know, she was giving service to her, the Crown and country and Princess Margaret gave service to her sister. And yes, she had the freedom to carve out, you know, her own life in hidden corners. But she too had a responsibility and that was to mm. Her Majesty the Queen. Princess Margaret not only comes over as sort of as you say, a nice, warm, slightly maternal figure. Oh, for totally you. maternal, yeah. But there's also the sense of her being very just get on with it, no nonsense. Oh she was t she was so practical. And she was not phased or embarrassed by anything. Mm. Another reason I loved her. And I, I have, that's something I learnt to try not to be. Oh, Rocco, shut your mouth. Um, and anyway, we were going round every summer. She would organise these kind of tours around a famous, hello. Hello. A famous London landmark. And we were at Greenwich. And I, after, kind of in the middle of lunch, I really needed to go and do a poo. So I went and I was, did a poo, it was quite big. I could, it wouldn't flush. I was thinking, what the fuck am I gonna do? All these people, go away. All these people, you know, they're, they're gonna come in and they're gonna know it's me because I've been away from the table for so long. But Princess Margaret, God bless her, came to find me and I was still kind of sitting on the loo, thinking with my pants around my ankles, thinking, what am I going to do with this poo? And she, she kind of said, you know, it's like, darling, just go and get a knife. <laughs> and you'll have to read the book to find out what happened and how she dealt with the drain blocking poo. <laughs> um, and so she was there. And then again in Mustique, I, I passed out and pooed myself. And she was there to mop up the pieces for that too. No, no nonsense. Just get on with it. Oh dear, poor Susanna. She's shat herself. And then her backup was Jerry Hall. So that wasn't such a great moment. <laughs> you didn't end up, you and David obviously didn't end up marrying. And I get the sense that you were, well, you're very honest about this, that you were basically waiting for him to commit yeah. at that point. I was, and he wouldn't, so I ran away to New York thinking he's going to miss me and then I'm going to come back. He's going to ask me to marry him, and he didn't. And so it kind of fizzled out, fizzled out. Is um, it hard break, breaking up with someone like that? Well, I think it's hard for anyone, you know, your first love. I mean, it was a, a kind of like a love affair with L plates. It's like you're learning how to have a relationship with someone. But I suppose you, it is very hard because it's like, you know, you, you're, 
you've left home, you've flown the nest, you know, I've flown the nest finally, mm. you know. And no. you ad it's like you adopt your boyfriend's family. I, I think know, but so what about when it's the royal that. family? Well, she, to <laughs> me, I mean, genuinely, she was just my boyfriend's mother. That completely came from her. That's what was hard. And it was, you know, you get into a routine and we go away for weekends and Dave would come up to the Priory or I go, we go to Royal Lodge or, and so all that goes. And it's, it doesn't matter who you're going out with, that mm. goes. Mm. And I think that's as hard as splitting up with a boyfriend. You know, it's, it's kind of everything else that comes with your boyfriend, their family, their friends, their, you know, home, their everything. I think in some ways for a lot of people if that relationship broke up they'd feel oh my god all my my life's kind of ended because yeah. I subsumed myself into that person's life but I I feel you were always very much your own person still yeah I think I've always been that mm. and I d again I didn't realize at the time but I I think I really I think I always have been I think I'm I'm someone who's very happy on their own are you? I don't need people at all. I really, I've, in fact, I find it hard to be surrounded by a lot of people unless it's work-related. Yeah. Um, I'd much rather my my absolute happy state is being is solitude, isolation, mm. and being completely alone. So I think maybe that's why. I don't know. And you obviously met your husband mm -hmm. you had a really kind of love at first sight thing with him really didn't you when you met him at a and party it, it was such a fucking cliche <laughs> you know it, re it really was love at first sight and you know I've had that with other people not just I mean the person I had it with before Steve was Jake Shears from the Scissor Sisters <laughs> a raging homosexual that he is but I fell in love with him you know there's no other way of looking at it I knew I was never gonna fuck him but I fell in love with him and I felt the same with Steen. I fell, it was instant, but it was more than, you know, I, I just, you know, you, you know, I knew he was gonna be my husband. And then we started talking at this party and um, three hours in, he said, he mentioned his father, Peter Bertelson. I was like, you're shitting me. And he'd, I'd worked for his father for four or five years, eight years previously when, because um, Peter had backed Alistair Blair, designer, and John Galliano, Richard James, Patrick Cox, Catherine Hamlet. And um, I'd worked for his dad, so I knew his dad really well, and his mum. So it was in the stars, and he was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. But just so solid, again, just, just, his himself. He wasn't impressed by anything, Steen. Mm. Nothing. And you were, I suppose, quite a lot to take on. Not, I don't mean that, please don't think I mean that in the, oh. Oh, no, I don't that, take I just it mean like that at all. You were a lot to take on. Well, in I had a bit of a well history, known, yeah. And you had a profile and everyone knew who you were. And Well, he was really embarrassed by that, <laughs> Steen. You know, he, he was working for Hill Samuel at the time and he did not tell anyone. He did not. We, we would go to a party <laughs> and he'd come, 
you know, he, he, he never goes to a party with me in the beginning because he was too embarrassed to turn up with me. So he'd come <laughs> half an hour later and we'd meet there because he didn't want to be seen with me because he didn't want to be, have the label of going up with some kind of socialite twat. <laughs> we should say career-wise as mm. well, um, you'd been working for Alistair Blair, this designer, you'd gone into fashion, hadn't you? Yeah, I mean, I'd gone into, not into fashion, I mean, it just happened to be fashion, but, but I'd fashion gone industry, into yeah. fashion to get a job, and my job at the time was literally, you know, Girl Friday. And well, now you'd be an grew. influencer. Now it would be but that's it's so exactly yeah. right. If you it was today, a fortune as you know, a brand Peter ambassador. was smart enough to see, here's a girl who never had a fucking job, had no education, but she had a good, good address book, and she was known in the newspapers. And I was the right person for Alistair. Most people probably, you know, I had no experience. And tall. And my father-in-law just, and he, Peter Bertelson, Danish, he, more than anyone, changed my life. Oh, how lovely. Because he gave me an opportunity to work. He gave me purpose. If I hadn't, you know, he employed me, and if I hadn't been good at the job, he would have fired me. But I wasn't. I was, I was good at it, and I worked bloody hard. Mm. And because of that, I then, everything went on. You know, that, that was the start of my career. That was the start of me being independent. That was the start of me getting away from my family. That was the start of me appreciating the value of family through him, not my own family. Mm. And, um, you know, I have so much to thank him for, and I wish he was still around. He was an amazing, amazing, larger-than-life, difficult man, but just amazing. So, yeah, thanks, OPB. And then your career, obviously, massively took off mm -hmm. in your sort of 30s and 40s, really. Yeah, we were like... It was just off. I got married at 32, and it was. I remember Steen saying to me when we got engaged. She said, "Don't think for one minute you, you're going to be relying on me for money. You've really? got to go out and work." And that was red rag to bull. And I thought, "Okay, you fucking watch me." You <laughs> and um, and I did. And it was just everything. But that's why you married the right person. I did marry. And that, you know what? Yeah. If someone had said that to your mother. I know she had mental illness, yeah. so I'm not saying, oh, yeah. she would have been fine. But what she was also lacking was purpose. Exactly. exactly. And isn't it amazing how, you know, I know you've suffered from anxiety and we, you know, yeah. people go through things. But sometimes it is helpful to have that focus. Totally. And, you know, I can't, he's the last person I can take any criticism from, but he's the only person I'll listen to because I trust him mm. and he's always annoyingly right. <laughs> and when your career took off with Trini, mm -hmm. watching your career and the success of What Not To Wear and all the other stuff you did and the books and the other shows, and I suspect inside there was, you were probably feeling, there's probably still a sense of imposter syndrome and you know. Well, do you know what? There never was actually. There never was imposter syndrome. It was. It just sort of happened. Did you and not? It, ha did you never have imposter syndrome? No. I. I ha more. Um, it was more. I think looking back, I wasn't. 
I was, gosh, don't get me wrong, I'm so, I'm so grateful to have had the career I did. But for absolute certain sure, I could never have done it without Trini. But it, it, everything kind of just sort of happened. It didn't, mm. we didn't manufacture anything. It just sort of was on its own trajectory. And we, well, certainly I, I it was, it was a, just a job. It was yeah. just a job. I, I wasn't aware of the success we were having or the impact. And because I don't look back, I still don't think that at all. It was a job. It was, you know, we were making really good money. And for me, the most important thing was that we were helping women and um, making women feel better about themselves. Mm. And that I never felt imposterish about. You know, that was something really valuable and it gave me a huge amount of self-worth to be able to help other people. How did you feel about fame? I didn't feel anything. I hate, you know, being on television is, for me, I mean, it was hard to begin with live TV. It's like, you know, absolute terror, but then you get used to it. And it was just being, your, it was just doing your thing on television. It was just, mm. the focus wasn't on the camera. The focus was on the woman or man that you were helping. I didn't even think about the cameras. And then, you know, fame, I didn't think about fame either. Uh, you know, I didn't sort of seek out fame. You know, it's very easy to be well known and avoid all that shit. It's very easy. You just don't buy into it. You just get on with your life. You don't go to walk down every red carpet, which is the most ridiculous thing to do. And, you know, we, we knew who we were, so we were able to handle it. You know, if it had happened to us when we were in our you know, early 20s, I'm sure it would have been a very different story. But even, you know, you're, we're talking whatever it is, 15, 20 years ago, and the, the kind of media was so different then. It was less immediate. It was yes. more, you, able to, you were able to have some sort of control over it. You know, uh, Trini was very much the more memorable one. And she, you know, I could sort of stand behind her. I didn't, I'm not good at being the front runner in anything except for writing. You know, I don't want to be the one making decisions. I don't want to be the one in the spotlight. I want to be, you know, I'll, I'll take spotlight, but as long as I've got part of me covered by someone else. And, and Trini provided that. You know, she was much more comfortable with it than I was. It's interesting as well that obviously looking at some of the incredible photos, and I mean, for that alone, you Aren't they that brilliant? They're but they're just snapshots, most of them. That's but what I love. Susanna's snapshots. Movie. Oh, that was one that, uh, yeah, I had that at Litchfield took that of me. Uh, oh. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is obviously you look like a model in those pictures. Did you consider yourself beautiful? No. How but did you think of yourself? I just thought, you know, I was kind of average. I mean, I really, really didn't think anything of myself, particularly. But I do look back now at those pictures and I can appreciate that, you know, I looked pretty, pretty okay. And it kind of, and then I look at my daughter Esme, who's my eldest daughter, she's the spit of me. And I look at her and I go, fucking hell, you're gorgeous. And then I think, oh, actually, you'd look like me. 
Mm. So that's a bit of a surprise. But no, I never, I never felt I was anything particularly. I think in a way though, it's that weird thing, isn't it? That you start to get confidence and you start to love yourself mm. a bit more, mm. frankly, in middle age. Yeah, and I think you've just got to be aware of your flaws, your defects. And what are your flaws? I have, I'm, I'm codependent, I'm a people pleaser, and I can be passive aggressive. <laughs> so those are mine. There you go. <laughs> and, um, are you working on the people pleasing? How do you work on it? Because you, do you have therapy? No, I'm not going to, no, I have in the past. Mm. No, I'm not going to stop being a people pleaser. You know, I, I can't. It's much more important to me. You know, I will be friends with someone if I think they like me. It doesn't matter what I think of them. <laughs> but if I think they like me, then I'll be friends with them. So that's, I don't know if that's kind of massively egotistical. If someone gives me even a chip, if there's an inkling yeah. that they disapprove in some way or... How can you be friends with someone like that? Unless you want to win them over. I mean, I had that with Jake Shears. You know, I, I think he wasn't, you know, who the fuck I was, anything about that. But I, I was determined <laughs> to make him like me and not only to like me, but to like me best in the world. And I did it. I mean, he probably doesn't like me best in the world, but we are very, very close friends. I'll tell but you I what. worked at that, you know, hard. It's funny, Emily. I, but isn't Very. it funny? I can't be like this in my family. Why? What do you mean, like this? I don't this? know why. Like, kind of completely open. It's like I'm, I'm gone, and I'm just thinking this now. This is not something that's in the book or anything, but it's kind of almost like I don't think my children will accept who I really am. I don't know. Isn't that that's a weird thing to say? But it's. Um, I find it easier to be myself with other people. I, f I find it quite hard to be totally myself with my children because I think they'll be embarrassed of me or, you know, they'll inwardly be going, oh, for fuck's sake, mum. Or, I mean, I know they love me and I know, you know, I had this thing where I called up this, um, was this kind of, I don't know what you call them, not fortune teller, and she's this incredible woman in America and Trini told me about her. And she sort of helps um, hospitals and possibly, you know, surgeons will call her up and, t t and they'll, you know, say, should I work on this person? Will it be okay? So she's really got a gift. I thought, okay, I'm going to go for it. And the first thing she said to me, and the only thing I remember was, oh my God, you're a phenomenal mum, aren't you? And that was the best thing anyone has ever said to me. And I do think I'm a good mum. I know, and that's what, um, you know, a lot of mums say that, and but does but it? I, I know I'm a good mum. I'm there for my kids, but I'm I people please with my children too. But can you not? I can see why that is because if I had grown up in your environment with a mother that I was frightened of upsetting, or I couldn't rely on, or I didn't feel stability from, if I had gone on to have kids, my entire life would be dedicated to never making them feel unsafe. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. You don't want your kids to ever to ever experience the feelings you experienced, which yeah. is mum's vulnerable. But I tell them that, though. I mm. tell them, you know, I will tell them. And, like, you know, when I went public about being an alcoholic, well, they knew I was an alcoholic, and, you know, that was really 
tough for them, especially my youngest daughter. Um, and that was actually the hardest bit to write in the book. I didn't, you know, that that really did affect me writing about Cece and and her being my watcher. It's your daughter, yeah. Yeah, and 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 I feel, you know, tremendous guilt about that. But we talk about it, and I, you know, I just said, look, Cece. You know, I, 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 the only way I can make amends is by staying sober. But one thing I will say is that everyone in life goes through trauma, unfortunately, at some point in their lives. You've been through it earlier, and it's what you went through with having a mum who's an alcoholic is going to help you in later life. You know, and what I've learnt in recovery, I can pass on to you, and you can help. And you know, it can help you in your daily life. It can help you to accept the things you can't change and to not worry about tomorrow because you might get run over by a bus. So mm. what's the point of worrying about it? And so, you know, but I do feel, feel tremendous, tremendous guilt still about that, but I can't change it. So I, I just need to did you have a moment of clarity when you thought this is enough? <laughs> yes, I did. I, uh, we were in Cornwall and um, with Steen's family and, and our family, uh, uh, his like, parents and Australian cousins and stuff. And we all got shit-faced, but because I was like a sponge that had, was already saturated, it affected me much more quickly. And I blacked out, fell, broke two transverse processes in my back, pissed myself. I was with my children, and Steen and my brother-in-law, Pierre, took me to bed. I was in such pain physically because of my back, emotionally broken. Mm. And, uh, and so the next day I got up and I got everyone around the kitchen table and I said, um, I need help, I'm an alcoholic and I've been lying to you, I've been drinking secretly, I drink three times as much as any of you think. Um, and then I asked them or what, how it had been affecting them. I said, I need to hear the truth. Um, so they told me. And then went, came back home and went to an AA meeting the next day. And, and it was, that was, um, it was like coming home. Not feel, you know, first time in years, I didn't feel alone. But it was the first time I was honest about something in years. How long has it been then since you've had a drink? Uh, Come on. Well, I've been going to AA for just over 10 years and I had two relapses, which were fucking amazing. And, um, but I haven't picked up a drink for seven years. And so you've been writing, obviously you've written this book, mm -hmm. but it's not your first book because no. you've... I read loads with, wrote loads with Trini mm. and she sort of produced them and I wrote them. And then I've written, you know, I've written many articles. Um, and you guys stayed we're really, really close, close friends. friends, which is lovely. Yeah. It doesn't we, often happen after professional no. partnerships end like that. No, but we're very, 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 very close. We don't see each other so much because she's so busy with yeah. her business and has done so phenomenally well. And I'm, I couldn't be more proud of her, but I never expected anything less of her. Were you sad when that ended? I yeah, I was sad. Were you sad? Yeah, you were We sad. both were. It was very hard for us. And we'd still, you know, for many years afterwards, 
well, not as many years, but quite a few years afterwards, you know, one or other of us, Trini more than me, but would get recognised. And it'd be, oh, look, there's Trini and Susanna when we weren't together. You know, it was never just Susanna or just Trini. But our, yeah, our friendship, it runs very, very, very deep. She's such a loyal person, Trin. Yeah. She's so loyal, and I know she would drop everything, and I would do the same for her. What so. do you think, Susanna, your friends would say, I like your best qualities? Such an interesting question. I've never thought about it. I think that down to earth and funny and loving, probably. That's what I'd like to hear. What would you worry, they would say? What would you least like to hear? I'm lazy, although I'm not. <laughs> but I have a chip on my shoulder about being lazy. Do you? Is that from your family, do you think? Yeah, well, I don't know. Not, I don't know where that's come from. No, I think that's self-flagellation. Oh, look, mushroom. Magic mushroom. Is it really? Yeah, it's a big one. Is that a magic mushroom? Yeah. I bet, I'm sure you know. Microdosing well, over here. I've never taken them. Too scared of my dark side. I've never taken them yeah. either. I'm terrified of anything like hallucinogenic. Yeah, me or too. Petrified. I tell you what I do worry about now. Come on. Is that I'm I'm antisocial. We never get to see her. Um, and I worry about not not being a good enough friend. That's what I worry yeah. about. But then I think the right friendships survive that. Oh, yeah, totally. Don't they? Yeah, totally. And I love meeting new people as well, because it's I sort do. of like you start all over again, and then yeah. you know, once you've known someone for a long time, there's that kind of transition where you have to make, you know, at the first it's exciting, and, <laughs> you know, and then it gets a bit boring, and you have to make an effort, and then it becomes <laughs> like an old pair of slippers, and it doesn't matter. I feel like you've really sort of, you're at peace with your folks now, because they're no longer with us, yeah. obviously, but no, I feel I like have... you've got some closure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I don't know if I, you know, when they died, my, both my parents, I didn't cry a single tear. Did you not? Do you cry often? Never. Why not? I don't know. I cry at happy tears, mm. but I do not cry. And it's, I think, you know, I need to cry, but I think there's so much buried. It would be good to cry, but I don't. I try and make myself cry and squeeze the tears out, but I just can't cry. But then you've obviously, there's that line in The Talented Mr Ripley, and I'm not comparing you, by the way, to yeah. um, him. But <laughs> he talks about there's that dark basement. Yes. And you... You, you meet someone and you finally think, I might let you in. Yeah. I feel like you let your husband in. And maybe he was the first person. You know what? I don't think I have completely. I don't think I've even let myself in. Mm. Into myself. I haven't let him in, but he's found his way in. And that's why he's such a good man. That's why I'm so lucky. And that's why, you know, 27 years we're still together. And I can imagine... You know, there's a really interesting thing you mentioned in the book when you're dating Imran Khan. Yeah. Because, of course, that's what you do when you've broken up with the Queen's nephew. You go out with Imran Khan. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but you said you never... You were in that relationship always 
aware that you were the, the, the lover rather than the loved? You know, I think the what again, writing this book, I realised and looking back at all the photographs and the times we had, I realised we did actually have much more of a relationship mm. than I remember. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's one of those sort of tropes that we, we teach ourselves to say and so you can you know you can compartmentalize a relationship in one sentence and then that's it you don't need to go any further but um yeah i i was always aware that it was never going to go anywhere mm -hmm. so i i did protect myself with him and i remember he wrote me a letter and he said you know the thing is you never let me in Come on, you. Oh, what a lovely, lovely walk it's yeah, been with you, good. Susanna. Yeah, I'm sorry that Raymond has been well, he has, such a lazy sod. <laughs> <laughs> He's a pampered oh. London prince. Oh, you're just very sweet, though. I'm Did glad my, my daughters aren't here, because they go, oh, can we get Raymond? Can we get a Raymond? He wouldn't last five minutes out here. He'd eat the magic mushrooms. But do you know what? He would, he would last because he'd be, he'd get used to it immediately. He would be running with me. Yeah. I mean, these dogs come running with me. The cats come running with me. So they, they think they're dogs. It would be his equivalent of SAS, are you tough enough? Yeah. It would be like one of the, have you ever, oh, we need to discuss strictly because you do mention that <laughs> in the book and Susanna was on Strictly Come Dancing with Anton was your motivation for doing it oh, just why, why the hell not my motivation was I did, I'm a celebrity too which mm. I was got kicked out first but I got paid so much money for that that I did I literally did it for the money and poor ITV I got kicked off first and strictly I did because I had paperback of my first novel coming out. So it was very calculated and I'd never watched Strictly in my life before. And I thought, fuck it. And I was flattered to be asked and it was a bit of a, nothing was going on. I thought, okay, let's do it. Oh my God. It was the most humiliating experience of my life. It was just the most terrifying, the most humiliating, the most rock bottom was it? period of my life. But I just loved Anton. I loved all the professional dancers are the nicest, most encouraging, sweetest people. And with the other contestants, I made some really, mm. you know, lifelong friends and it was incredible to see this whole machine. You know, it was like a kind of fallow garden that was watered and the whole thing came to life. And I, you know, I wish I had watched it because I wouldn't have, I would have seen what a privilege it was to yeah. have been a part of that and not to take myself so fucking seriously, which I did. Like, well, if I'm not gonna win, I'm not, I'm gonna hate it. And as I couldn't dance, and I looked like a cross between an ironing board and a gorilla. <laughs> um, it wasn't going to happen. Poor Anton. It's funny, I, you look up Wikipedia. Yeah. And it says, you know, 
all it says here, Anton's worst score ever oh, no. with Susanna Constantine. The only time he got knocked out first was with Susanna Constantine. The lowest score he got in X was with Susanna Constantine. I mean, what an extraordinary guy to go through that humiliation forced upon him by me. It was agony. It was like stepping onto the guillotine, the, you know, the platform of the guillotine and allowing yourself to be executed willingly. Oh, I mean, look, watching that back, I had to watch it back and I, I mean, I, I kind of spontaneously, my, my bowels liquefied immediately watching it. Oh my God. I think I got PTSD after it, to be honest. No, I think you can get that from oh. experiences like that. Fucking hell. Come on, Ray. Anyway, but I would love to do it again because I'd have a different attitude now. And I'd realise that you just got to let yourself go and enjoy it rather than, yeah. you know, taking it so seriously, which is what I did. Do you like walking? I love walking because it's so great when it's done and you get back. Yeah. And you can, you know, it's just so lovely. It's lovely to walk like this. And you just, you're so, again, it's so present and you notice things and yeah. you can just let your mind wander and freedom and I love it. And you see this here, which is quite extraordinary. So we're looking at a post on a fence, wooden fence, and there's so much moss on it. Oh my God. And that means that there's no pollution here. Isn't that lovely? Yeah, so in, you go down to Cornwall or Northumberland and you'll see it's everywhere and in London you won't find it at all. I'm interested that you're good at being on your own, I can see that. You're quite a self-sufficient person. Yeah, I just, I like, it's freedom. Yeah. You know, when you've got kids that are always like, mom, 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 <laughs> and, you know, and then you don't see them for ages and you're so excited to see them and they'll last for about two hours and then... But, um, yeah, no, it's just, because it is, it's, you know, it's busy. Yeah. And I do think, you know, I've, I've often thought back, look back at my time with Trini and how absent we were, especially me with three kids. But my understanding now is that my children need me more now than they did then. You know, you could, a bit like my own childhood in a way, um, but they were very secure, my kids. They knew this was home and there was love and we were doing the best we could. And, but I'm much more, I do much more for my kids now in terms of not financially or organising their lives, but emotional support. Come so, on, doggies. Come on. Come on, Oh, Lachlan. look. You're gorgeous. Raymond, you can pretend you've walked the whole way Raymond. now. Raymond! Oh, you um, uh, He is quite sweet. Susanna, I have loved chatting with you. Oh, thank you. So have I. Lo I've loved it. Have you? Yeah, it's been amazing. You've asked such good questions and it's just been so natural. Do you know what I mean? It's like effortless. Listen, let's, uh, we're going to say goodbye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye, goodbye, Rocco. Raymond. Oh, Raymond, I, I'm actually, I don't like other people's dogs, but I do quite like Raymond. 
I do quite like you because you're so little and so furry. And yes, you're so. He really is very sweet. I really thought I wouldn't like him. I, I thought I'd want to kind of pray he got stuck down a rabbit hole or something. But I'm, I'm actually quite in love. I am quite in love with you, Raymond. And I don't like little toy dogs, but you are. Oh, he's just so lovely to hold, isn't he? I really hope you enjoyed listening to that and do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.